0: Welcome to episode 249 of the Coot Street Podcast, an informal weekly discussion about science fiction and fantasy featuring Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolfe. This week, we're joined by London-based Malaysian author Zen Cho. Zen is author of the Crawford Award-winning short story collection Spirits Abroad and the widely lauded debut novel Sorcerer to the Crown. She's also the editor of Malaysian cyberpunk anthology Cyberpunk Malaysia. Zen joins us from her London home.
1: We're well, uh, welcoming today Zen Cho, who is somebody we've wanted to have on the podcast ever since winning the um, Crawford Award from uh, the ICFA last uh, March. So start off by saying congratulations, Zen.
2: Thanks very much, Gary.
1: And my next question, because that's the other big news that we have on the podcast, is that uh, your, your first novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, is uh, coming out, well, I guess any day now, isn't it?
2: It's um yeah, it's literally on Tuesday. Um, Tuesday the first of September in, in America. Um, and then another a further nine days till the UK edition gets out and I'm I'm um I'm based in London, so that's kind of the date I'm
0: working towards. It must be a pretty exciting time. How long have you been working on the novel?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a very exciting time. Um how long I I've sort of stopped working on the novel itself now. Um, I mean, unless you can't promo work. Um, so, I, I, how long did did I work on the novel? I started writing it in October 2012, and it sold in November 2014. And I was pretty much working on that on and off in the sort of entire intervening period. And of course, um, of course, I then did some more work on it after it sold with my editor. Um, so, yeah, till so tw- late 2012 to early 2015 a while
0: and how does it feel to <laughs> a bright shiny new novel out in the world
2: it feels good yeah it feels I mean it's it's very surreal I mean to, to, to work towards something for you know I've been wanting to write and and have published a novel um, for for a while um, and it's it's very weird to um, to have the box of books in my living room, um, and and you know for, for it to be a thing that other people have read have have read. I think especially with a novel, you're you're working on it in, in solitude for so long. Um I didn't really have anyone reading it. Um, I'm I'm sort of very. I mean, I, I need to improve this actually, but I'm very protective about my work when it's in progress. I just I'm I might talk to a couple of you know carefully selected people about what's going into it, but otherwise nobody sees it. In, at the early stages, and I remember finding it very weird um, when I when I started querying agents um, with the novel. And um, you know, I had a call with one of the people who offered representation, and they were just saying, "So, you know, Zachary's just like this." No, I was just kind. Of, and it was just such a surreal moment. It was like, oh, it's, it's almost like they're real characters in a real book. Cause, you know, other people, you know, send, you know, you know that agents are going to read it when you send it to them, or you, you hope they will, but then. I, you know, it just doesn't really—it doesn't really register until someone actually sort of says things like, "Oh God, you've read the whole thing." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think one of the things that might surprise people about the novel, which, by the way, is delightful, and I can't wait to see the next one, um, is that uh, you, you actually got a lot—a surprising amount of attention for your story collection, "Spirits Abroad." And the reason I say surprising is because it was. Uh, a, a Malaysian publication, which uh, I, I remember talking with the Crawford Award committee. I don't even know how we found that, uh, and and <laughs> now, I, but 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 it got great reviews, um, and 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 yet, uh, on the basis of that, uh, with with this you know, movement toward multiculturalism and. Uh, science fiction with with, Thai writers and a a Chinese novel winning the Hugo Award and so forth and so on, I think everybody was expecting some sort of uh, Malaysian immigrant culture clash um, theme like in your short stories and instead you're writing um, well, what is almost like a Regency romance written by Terry Pratchett
2: (laughs) That's a a fantastic description Um, Yeah, um well, I think, I think, but, but just to go to Spirits Abroad for a moment, I think um, it, it is, I guess it's surprising, it would be surprising for the collection to have received a lot of uh, kind of US UK attention, um, mm. given that uh, my Malaysian publisher, Fixie, doesn't, <laughs> isn't doing a lot to, uh, he's really, they're really focused on, on distribution within Malaysia at the moment. And, um, right. and, and I do get queries from people saying, oh, we'd like to stop. In our school library, or would like to, you know, we'd like to do this, or we'd like to do that, and, and I just have to say, well, my publisher's happy to ship it from Malaysia if you're happy to pay the exorbitant shipping that's going to require uh-huh. but he's not, he's not otherwise really b- bothering to get them into um, American bookshops, which is something I, I I respect and is is part of the reason why I'm I'm very happy to be working with them. Um, right. But um, but I mean, to make it, but the point about spirits broad actually is that many of the stories that were are, are in it were actually first published in. Uh, U.S., UK, Australian publications. So, in, in uh-huh. um, you know, I was kind of submitting them to zines and so on. So, you know, Strange Horizons, that sort of place. So, um, I, you know, I suspect that's probably why um, people will outside of Malaysia will had heard heard of it um that was kind of um how i I got into publishing short fiction in the first place and then i I published them in various zines and then collected them in a a collection and went and found a malaysian publisher Um, but with um with sorcerer to the crown yeah i guess i guess it is quite funny that it's um it's this kind of departure from from um spirits abroad but it's um if you know anything about my interests it is quite natural to me i I was sort of saying to somebody else in an interview because they were saying Quite different, um, but yeah. Like if you read Spirits Abroad, you might think my only interest in life is ordinary Malaysians meeting magical creatures. <laughs> That's not actually the case. I do have more than one interest um, uh, artistically, and um, I, I, I always say that I sort of um, I write in two modes. So one is sort of this Malaysian fantasy, which I, I primarily do because it, it involves minimal research. I just do, I just mm-hmm. take an incident from my life and add magic, <laughs> and so you know it's the kind of laziest possible way of creating. <laughs> Of, of writing short stories um but um and then this other um mode um which i kind of i jokingly call called fluff for post-colonial book nerds was just essentially me just processing my childhood reading which included regency romances and perry Pratchett and um woodhouse and 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 writers like that um and oh. where i sort of i sort of drawn those kind of traditions and um kind of play with them, really, and just just have a good time and, and sort of – but also kind of make it about colonialism, because that's one of my many interests.
0: <laughs> well, possibly one thing we, we might ask you to do, because it seems like a, a good thing to do fairly early in the discussion for our listeners, is could we ask you to describe Sorcerer to the, to the Crown to uh, the people who are going to listen to the podcast?
2: Yes, that is sensible. That's a sensible thing to do. So I, um, I sort of say it's it's a Georgia. It's like a Georgette Hare novel, but with magic and jokes about colonialism. <laughs> the plot is about um, the premise is that it's about um, England's first African sorcerer royal, um, Zachariah's wife, um, and it's set in Regency London. So it's 1807, 1808, thereabouts. Um, and he has a lot of problems, <laughs> largely arising from him being uh, England's first um African sorcerer royal um it takes place in a world where uh magic is sort of um administered really in England by the Royal Society of Natural Philosophers uh whose membership is largely sort of rich white british men mm-hmm. um and they're not terribly happy about having a sorcerer royal who is not a rich white british man um and um and Zacharias's problems various problems um are um exacerbated when he meets um a, an ambitious runaway orphan who's also a female magical prodigy in a world where women are not really supposed to be doing magic. Uh, her name is Prinella Gentleman and she's just made England's biggest magical discovery in centuries. And that's that's the premise of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you make the journey? I mean, I, I know you're saying it's your background reading, but th- this book sounds an awful lot like like Su- Susanna Clark's uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, right. but with a twist, and perhaps lighter and funnier and significantly shorter, um, how do you make the journey from Spirits Abroad to um, Sorcerer to the Crown? Because, I mean, you're saying it's different background reading, but they do seem really quite different kind of things to be doing. Yeah, is
2: it? I suppose so. Uh, I think... um, But... I think um, with Spirits Abroad... I mean, what? Well, okay, basically, what happened was, um, I grew up as a kid in Malaysia, um, and I was reading a lot of these British and North American writers, the ones that we've named already, and actually including Susanna Clark, whose book I absolutely love. And, um, you know, I've, I've gotten into arguments with people, people in Twitter where they're like, I hated Donald Strange and Mr. Norville, like, I love Sorcerer to the Crown. I'm like, thanks, but you're wrong! <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, makes me really, like, like, offended fangirl. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> but, um, but um, I so I grew up reading all these these British and North American authors, um, and and um, and I, I I keep referring to these um, these Penguin popular classics they used to sell in Malaysian bookshops, and I, I'm sure they sold them here as well, in the UK and the US as well. Where there's sort of these beige mass market paperbacks, and they were really cheap. They're five ringgit eighty cent, which was about like it was less mm-hmm. than a pound, um, and. Um, uh, I, you know, and, and they were, they really covered the, the, sort of corpus of like 19th century British authors, you know, this kind of canon. So George Eliot, Tom, Thomas Hardy, uh, the Bronte's, Austin, Dickens, all these really kind of classic authors. And I, I primarily read these because they were were very cheap and i didn't have much to do as a kid growing up and um, i was i was very easily bored so um so you know jane Eyre, for example it's a lot of reading for 580 (laughs) and um and so that that worked out quite well and i just kind of burned my way through these um and so I was kind of, you know, I, I had this kind of background of, you know, reading his books that were really quite detached from the world that I lived in and had people who didn't talk anything like the people that I spoke to on a daily basis and that kind of thing. And, um, and, when I was growing up, I, I as a teenager, for, uh, I got into writing fanfic and I used to do lots of pastiche and that was kind of my thing. Like, I would do, um, stories in the style of P.G. Woodhouse. I would do stories in the style of Rudyard Kipling. I would do stories in the style of Terry Pratchett. And, um, and that was, that was a lot of fun actually. You know, you just, you just do it because, um, it's like a challenge, you know, like, uh, and Rudyard Kipling actually himself did this. Like, he, he used to write poems in the style of Robert Browning, you know, he, yeah, and, and, and so it's, um, you know, it's kind of like how I guess artists copy you know the masters whatever and 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 then they then they start doing their own thing and um and then I, I was kind of doing this as a teenager but I kind of knew like well I have to kind of find my own voice you know it's, it's it's fun doing all this stuff but um I need to kind of work out a way to talk to talk and write about the sort sort of people that I know in real life and the culture that I'm living in um and so spirits abroad was really the kind of fruit of of that development where eventually I did kind of work out. I worked out the voice, which I think, as somebody who, um, you know, growing up had never ever seen in fiction a representation of you know anyone who was anyone anything like people I knew in real life. um, Mm -hmm. That's that's quite difficult because you learn to write from you know learning from other writers. You you learn to write from reading, Um, and because I read in English you know, the, what was available to me was, was books by North American and, and British writers. Um, and Virginia Woolf talks about this in or, or something similar about in A Room of One's Own. She talks about Jane Austen as having worked out her perfect sentence. She's worked out the sentence in which mm-hmm. she tells stories about the people she knows and the concerns she's interested in. Um, and, and she talks about how that's, uh, Woolf talks about how that's difficult for female writers because, um, you know, like, uh, just just historically, there, there aren't that many compared to male writers. Mm. Um, and and so I think everyone from a kind of less, you know, kind of underrepresented, traditionally underrepresented background or whatever, you, you kind of have to work that out. And Spirits Abroad was what happened when I worked it out and I, I sort of found that, that way to speak about, um, you know, the sort of people I knew and that sort of thing. And then add dragons just because that's the kind of thing I like <laughs> to do. Um, but, um, but so, Sorcerer yeah. to the crown is really just like, it's, it's, it's almost like a return to my roots in a way it's kind of like okay i i know i can do you know i, can, I know i can do um contemporary malaysian fantasy now you know that's I, I i know i can talk right about you know my people so like um so let's let's do let's do the other thing let's do the other thing that i still enjoy which is pastiche and and so on and and i did i do mix it you know so obviously there are there are as you know malayan characters that do appear in the book mm. um so i mix mm. it up but uh um, that's quite a long answer, but that's that's kind of how they connect in a way. Um, actually, the other piece of um, the other piece of kind of detail, uh, which is why I, I wrote *Sorcerer to the Crown*, I guess, or, or why it's sold or whatever. It's actually I wrote two novels before this one, before mm-hmm. *Sorcerer*, um, and they were uh-huh. both them. Um, They're both set in Malaysia. they were both set in contemporary Malaysia. And the first was kind of like chick lit, and the second was like kind of young adult fantasy, and they just didn't really work. Um, and I couldn't really work out how to make a novel work, and and I thought, you know, it's because I don't know how to structure something that's this long. And um, I think it was really helpful when I, I was like, oh, well, just do some. Actually, let's go back to pastiche. Let's let's you know, let's do something really relaxing and familiar, and let's do that. Right. And um, when I decided to do the pastiche and say, oh, let's let's write a Regency in romance with magic, um, your 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 standard Regency romance has a very clear structure and has got you know, it's got the cer- certain things sort of happen um as part you know these tropes that you can use um and i think that's part of why sorcerer i wrote i wrote it and i was like oh this is actually this is not this is actually all right you know i'm going to be able to make this work because i think that kind of gave me a framework to work within um and so that's that's the other piece of why it ended up being you know it ended up well,
1: sorcerer. You, 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 you talked about writing uh, writing these pastiches or writing pastiche styles as, as fan fiction, which you were, you're, you're describing a much more sophisticated type of fan fiction than I'm used to seeing when you say that you were going to try, okay, let's try writing something in a P.G. Woodhouse style or in a Jane Austen style. That's not the way most people approach fan fiction. Most people approach fan fiction by saying, I'd like to see these characters do different things, and and, and are fairly opaque to the style, so you must have been extraordinarily sensitive to voices even when you were uh, reading and writing that fan
2: fiction earlier. It's interesting that you say that because I i suppose that's um I mean I suppose it's kind of right, but I think like fiction in general, like a lot of people are kind of um, not uh-huh. that sensitive to voice. Um so, you know, they, they they you know most people can only write in one voice. Um I think it probably and so like, I you know I'm just kind of like defending fanfic because I'm, I'm by no means the only person who does that sort of thing. Um, you know, maybe there weren't that many people who did who decided to do a Discworld crossover <laughs> for a Discworld version of every it. single fandom thing, but, um, but you know, there's 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 loads of fanfic that um is similar. So there's the Susanna Clark fanfic, which is kind of in the style of, and there's there's Beowulf fanfic, which is also in the style of you know and there's Tosser mm-hmm. fanfic that's in the style of um Tosser. Um so um but uh I think um, I guess I am quite sensitive to voice. Um I can't actually read that much Modern, like, that much regency stuff that's, that's written by modern people because, um, because, you know, often they just fall down at the voice and I can't, and that just bounces me out of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably from my background. So growing up in, um, you know, in Malaysia, like my parents spoke Hokkien to each other. My, my grandparents spoke different dialects. I went to a uh, Mandarin medium school, but we, we were speaking English at home. They, they always spoke English to us kids. Um, I learned Malay as well. So like, I think, um, and also I, at home, I speak Malaysian English. I don't speak this kind of English, which doesn't, you know, which which is kind of the more standard, so you know, quote unquote kind. Um, so I think um, that kind of code switching meant that I, I had that sensitivity to voice, and also you know, talking Malaysian English on a daily basis, but then reading, I don't know,
1: just. Just to add to the, confu- the kind of cultural confusion and voices, your your family is actually Chinese Malaysian, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Um, yeah, it is Chinese Malaysian. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's 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 another, I guess, element of the kind of multiplicity of voices. With, with, exactly,
0: which
1: multicultural. Was...
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. Right. So, when you decided that you, I mean, obviously you're, you're tr- trying to successfully write a first novel. You've tried these these previous two that didn't work. You've decided you're going to try a variation on Regency Romance. You've obviously decided to add a lot more of your own twist to it, not just by adding magic, but this is not a classic Regency romance setup as it would be in a Georgette Heyer novel or something. We're a lot more aware of politics. We're a lot more aware of race. We're a lot more, you know, we're, I mean, for example, um, you know, Zachariah is a former slave. We hear a little bit about that sort of thing at various points in the book. Um, and the various reactions, obviously, a lot of re- reactions to his race, to the background of Pranella uh mm-hmm. and of course you know the malaysian thing, sorcer- sorceress who's in it and everything else was that an important thing for you to add to the book or the stories you were telling it or was it just the kind of thing you felt you had to add because that's the kind of story that you were ready to tell
2: um more of the second i mean people do put it like um and it's quite an actual way to to say oh yeah you know like i i wrote a, a Georgette hairstyle novel and then added you know added the politics, but actually that was kind of it's it's um a slightly misleading way to put it because the the politics was my entry point um you know it it wouldn't have been an interesting novel to me to write if it hadn't had all that stuff and and really actually the as with any novel like you, you there's lots of sources for it um a lot of things go into it but but the kind of thing that 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 triggered. Um, the idea, and, and made me think, oh, I'll, I'll write this book, um, was actually when I was growing up and reading, say, Enid Blyton, um, uh, you know, these, and I, I don't know if the listeners know who Enid Blyton yeah. is, but um, she's exactly. massively, widely read across all the ex-British colonies. You know, it's me and Chimamanda and Ngozi and Adichie, basically, <laughs> <laughs> and who are recovering Blyton fans. Um, and um, and she, she just, you know, she was a massively prolific um, British author who just wrote huge huge amount of, of, of um, children's books, um, and um, and I grew up reading these um, kind of you know set in the early to mid twentieth century, and um, and when they talked about characters, they would you know they would refer to people as being dark, and um, you know I read this and know that, and and in Malaysia if you if you say someone's dark, you mean they're dark skinned, and. Um, and, but reading these books, I knew, you know, I knew that's not what they meant. I knew it was all about white people. So, um, that always mm-hmm. puzzled me when I was going on. What they meant <laughs> was dark haired. Um, so w- when I started, when I started sort of, I was casting around for another project, I was like, Oh, wouldn't it be funny to write like, you know, a Regency romance where, you know, you said the main character was dark and they all thought it was dark haired, but actually he was actually dark skinned uh-huh. because he's black. Um, and so that's a kind of like jokey thought you have. And then you, and that, and that's kind of, where it started. and then you start thinking, "Oh well, what would it be like to be a black man in, in Regency London?" And we have first person accounts of that. Um, so, ah. so it's you know it's, inter- it's something that's interesting to explore in fiction.
0: Was there a lot of research in doing the book?
2: I guess yeah, a fair amount, um, a fair amount. I, re- I read, um, I read a lot of. Uh, well, I read a lot of um, period fiction, which, I, which I'm still doing to kind of try to keep that voice. Um, I, I, you know, I read up in history. I read up uh, of of England and Regency London. There's there's so much material in that because Regency romance is such a, an established genre. But also, mm-hmm. I tried to, you know, I was also reading up in the history, like India at that time, China at that time, trying to find some stuff in Malaysia, Malaya and the Malayan archipelago at that time. but That was quite difficult. Um, so so yeah, I I kind of did all that reading. I quite enjoy it though, and. Um, and and one book that was really instrumental, actually, in um, in in what the book became was Linda Colley's Britons Forging the Nation, seventeen o seven to eighteen thirty seven, <laughs> which was you know and and I um, I talked about this on my blog, but I, I someone recommended it to me, and it's about um, it's about the, the forging of the British identity and 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 the fact that the UK was you know was quite a new um, a relatively new kind of construct at that time and how how um, Britain was made, really. Um, and I think, um, I mean, going back to Susanna quote, there, there have been lots of kind of comparisons because uh, one, of big, one of Zacharias's big problems is that England's running out of magic and they don't really know why. And he's trying to, and everyone's blaming it on him because um, he's kind mm. of an easy scape. He's trying to solve it. And, um, you know, of course, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Narles about England not having any magic and it's coming back. Um, and the the other thing is that, you know, it's obviously Regency and fantasy, and it's interested in gender and race and class, which which Jonathan Strange and Mr. is also interested in. But, mm. really, I think what, the, one big difference um, between the books, um, besides the fact that Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell's amazing, I would never pretend <laughs> <know, it hadn't> to <laughs> be so as good, but um, it's like, Jonathan Strange and Mr. is interested in Englishness. You know, what does, what does it mean to be English? What does Englishness mean? Uh-huh. And you have that interesting tension between the North and the South in the, in the book where, you know, the, the North, um, was ruled by the Raven King, who's this magical king, and the South is, you know, um, and, and so that's kind of, that, that's this kind of division. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not my, you know, it wouldn't be my place to write about Englishness. I'm not English. Um, I didn't grow up here. Um, but but what I'm really interested in, in or Sorcerer is interested in, is, is Britishness and what does uh, what what does Britain mean? and what does and specifically what does what does the British Empire you know mean for for Britain actually? Because I think in Britain at least um, the, there is talk about colonialism and imperialism and all this sort of thing. But I think I've seen a lot more discussion of what imper- like British imperialism has meant for other countries for the colonies. But you don't see as much of an acknowledgement in Britain. Mm. That actually, Britain itself is a product of colonialism, and that the Britain that exists would not exist without slavery and um, and you know the exploitation of colonial territories. That's where all the that's where the money came from. So, um, so that's kind of what Sorcerer was interested in exploring in the media by the medium of a lighthearted.
1: That explains why why you would have been. I can understand why you might have been fascinated by reading Kipling, which was, who, who was kind of the, you know, the great poet of British imperialism. Uh, and I really, of, yeah, uh,
2: yeah, I think like, there's, there's, I, I have mentioned Kipling a couple of times, and people do kind of, uh, you know, nobody really comments on it. I think this is like, the kind of like, really him? <laughs> 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 I mean, obviously, he was a, a giant, blaming racist. <laughs> of course. Good <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I kind of read him when I was, uh, when I was quite young, and you, you, you don't really start thinking about that sort of thing. Um, yeah it's very interesting
1: it's very interesting right? well one of the things that fascinates me about the, uh, the about what you just described in terms of uh, uh, the, the the use of magic and i I mean obviously the reviews are going to be comparing a lot of this to jonathan strange and but but I think one of the differences and for that matter there have been a it's almost a tradition of stories about magic having gone away and, and trying to get it back and so forth. So, uh, Susanna Clark is well aware that she didn't invent that. But the difference seems to be, and I, I said this in my review, which you'll see in a couple of days also, um, that traditionally in stories like that, Magic is treated as almost as, as kind of a natural resource, as coal or oil and that sort of thing. And it seems yeah. to me that that's not really the way you're treating it in The Sorcerer and the Crown. It becomes more of an economic engine. Um, and there's also an absurdity to it. I mean, one of the brilliant Terry Pratchett touches in the novel is that, you know, magic is no longer flowing into, Eng- flowing into England through this barrier. And it turns out there's just a cork there holding it back. Um, that was one of my favorite bits of the book, by the way.
2: Yeah, but,
1: it's a joke. Yeah. but 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 apart from that, there's this related theme of uh, of women's magic being suppressed deliberately. There's a school for women magicians which teaches them not to use their magic, essentially. And the sense that well, the, the sort of the economics of magic would balance out better if if women were allowed to. Um, to work and it's, it's so, the, so the argument of the royal society seems to be no it's we, we can't have women doing this even if we're even if our exports are drying up we don't have the economic so so magic becomes a kind of economic engine rather than a natural resource in your novel
2: I think that's a, yeah that's an interesting point but I suppose I mean it's kind of it's something that goes to the heart of colonialism isn't it because I mean natural hmm. resource is any, you know, it is an economic what? factor, it is an economic um, driver and engine. Um, and um, and I think that's right that I, you know, like, magic is a resource, if not a, a sort of natural resource, but it's, um, I'm not, you know, I'm kind of not interested in it as like, oh, they are just those mountains over there. It's more like, I'm interested in, in it as like, oh, there are those mountains and we're using them as tea plantations, or, um, um. you know, or, I guess you know you could say, "All oh, right, magic is a natural resource. There'll be a field." Um, and then, like, what I'm interested in is, like, well, you know, they used to use this field um, to grow crops, right? The local people, but now yeah. the British come and they they've now forced them to grow opium, um, and now they don't have enough crops to live on. And also, the and the British are also selling opium to the Chinese and and, right. and um, to you know to correct the the balance of the the kind of flow of silver um, versus um, you know tea, or whatever. Um, that and, and and it all led to the Opium War. Um, that's probably the most incoherent description of the Opium War anyone's ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but so that that's kind of um, that's kind of what I was interested in, and um, that that's kind of why I guess magic is like that in the book because it you, you know you're sort of using it as as a as a way to um, examine these interconnections. Um, that happen in the real world whenever there's a kind of source of power or a source of status, um, which which magic is, and um, ah. I'm not sure, I'm not sure this is clear to readers actually, but um, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking this is going to be a spoiler. Anyway, sorry,
0: you, yeah. you well, going to say. well, I was going to say, it seems to me as well, though, the, the, the real issue in the, in the, in the to, to untangle in this, though, is it's it's the wasted resource of the female population it, itself who are being kept mm-hmm. in a very uh, diminutive role and, and they're assumed to be too delicate, too uh, fragile to be able to bear the bo- burden of being a, a thaumaturge or a sorcerer which mm. is, is frankly untrue and it's untrue in the world, world of the story and yet it suits them to believe that and it seems that a lot of the story or a good chunk of the story is about interrogating that false assumption and providing repeated examples of it being untrue as ways of highlighting just how flawed and sexist it is.
2: Yeah, but it's it's more complicated than that, isn't Mm. it? I mean, I'm not sure the book um, succeeds at at really kind of laying out the complications, because it is a bit, it it, it is complex. But, um, you know, there is a kind of, there's a justification for sexism. There's a justification, you know, there's there's a rational reason for oppression, because there is only so much power and resource to go, well... There's not. Mm. There's not only so much power. You know, we could feed the entire world if we wanted to, but, um, you know, it it, it's rational to say, well, you know, we're rich white dudes and we have this power and actually we just want to have all the power and we want to have all the magic and we want to have all the money and all the rest of you are not allowed to have any. Um, and and you know that it makes sense. You know, if you're a rich white dude, why wouldn't you? Um, if you didn't mind being evil, but um, Mm -hmm. and and it's and in the in, with magic, like my, the kind of way, way I see it, and I, I might not have conveyed this, but um, the way I see it is that, well, actually, it does make sense to deprive women of magic, especially in in situation where um, where England's running out of magic. Um, you know, you you do see in the book that that's not true. If you if you give if you allow women to have uh, to do magic, or you you can't stop them, they can help the situation. Right? Uh, that's how the plot is, is set up. Mm-hmm. But it is rational if you kind of look at the resources and you say that's. This stuff is running out. Well, actually, we should just keep it for the people we like, the sort of people we think deserve this sort of resource. To say, okay, all you know, like women, obviously not good enough. You know, like black men, you know, you shouldn't have any rights mm-hmm. to this. Um, so, so it's it's kind of more complicated. That's kind of rational. I, I think one of the things I was thinking about when I was um, when I was writing it is about how um, you know, like in times of, I mean, say right now, you know, in a time where there's a recession or, you know, there aren't as many jobs as there are, uh, there, there should be, uh, you know, people are struggling, you know, they, they, like, people are looking, look for a scapegoat, and they say, you over there, you shouldn't have it. So, you know, you over there, you shouldn't have the benefit, you shouldn't have benefits, because I'm, I'm really struggling here. And it's just not, you know, we don't have enough to go around, you know, we shouldn't let immigrants into this country, because it's just not enough to go around. Um, and we should just keep it all for like, real, real British people. Um, and that's kind of what I was thinking about, um, in, in that regard.
1: We should probably mention as a parenthesis now that uh, – because uh, people may be listening to us and thinking that this is a, a, a dense novel of economic theory. And, yeah. Jeez, this and is and
2: like <laughs> heavy stuff. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's really a lot of
1: fun. It's very funny. <laughs> and, um, and, then,
2: uh, and then they read books like, you know, this is going to be really serious. It's going to be really good. And then like it's like, oh, yeah, it's a dragon with a monocle. <laughs> it's,
0: like, uh, it's, yes, uh, it's a very the, serious souffle. <laughs> well, but, but the issue of
1: um, uh, the, the the issue of uh, well, one thing I think is uh, that that does set it apart tonally from from uh, work like Susanna Clark is that uh, and 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 Susanna Clark was doing a very good job of a, of obtaining a kind of um, uh, very ironic uh, Jane Austen voice in that, but but keeping the voice to the period. And It seems to me the voice in Sorcerer to the Crown is not that at all. It's uh, it's it's a later voice. It's a voice which more relates to uh, to writers like Woodhouse. It's a it's, it's a modern seeming book, in other words, uh, rather than uh, rather than really a pastiche of the period. Uh, yeah. But in addition to all the gender and and and, and racial uh, politics, which is which is clearly the theme of the novel, you have this one figure that's unlike anything in any other Victorian fantasies. And I'm not even sure how to pronounce the the name of this sorcerer's Mak Gengang, is that something um, close Gingang? to it? Okay. And that's yes. it? She just becomes a, a, an element of chaos in this culture that is unlike anything the Victorians have ever pre-Victorians, uh, you know, Edward, um, Regency uh, England has had to deal with before. It's like it's like your own Malaysian culture erupting into uh, Regency England. Yes, she does do that,
2: yeah. Um, yeah, well <laughs> what's that to say about Man Um so Man is a Malayan you know, for for listeners who haven't read the book, it's a Malayan witch who basically charges over to England, um and um and starts causing trouble um for various reasons. Um and um and yeah, she she you know, she's kind of she's part of this subplot which was supposed to be all about like well it's all about like colonialism, how it works, you know, the fact mm. that um it's it's the British would not have got a would not have got a foothold in Malay, the Malayan archipelago if they hadn't been able to make themselves useful to the elite there, um, and uh, you know that's something that's you know to, to be modern about it. Like that's something that's kind of had long lasting uh, impact on on you know on Malaysia and and similar countries, um, and so that's kind of a, a, like a strand of the book, and then Mat kind of came along as this like like angry chaotic. Uh, <laughs> defied person who's just got her own, her. You know, she's not really interested in what the British o- is offering. She's got her own agenda. And um right. I mean, on a re- on a very really shallow level, though, the reason why I wrote her is because like she's just one of my like anti characters, like these like like obstreperous old women And I really like writing that kind of character because they essentially write themselves. <laughs> <all. laughs> they just they just kind of go off and do what they want, and you're just kind of following them. Like, and, and I find them hilarious as well. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like in your story, The House of Aunts, uh, which yeah, seems yeah, to yeah. Sort of, yeah.
0: So let me ask you a question: If I may, you're an, you're a Malaysian-born Londoner who's written this Regency romance fantasy about all these very things we've been talking about. Do you find that with your first novel coming out, there's a lot of things that people expect of you that they expect you to be writing about, whether you've chosen to or not?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think nobody like I've been asked a couple of times, um, why is this book not about uh Chinese Malaysians? Which um most of the stories and short, short stories in Spirits Broad are about Chinese Malaysians, um primarily, although the, you know, there's a there's a little bit of diversity. But um, um and uh and, but those those have been questions from other Asian people. So, like I wasn't like you know, I, I mm-hmm. thought it was kind of a fair point. Um, I, I think um, you know, there's been a, there's been less of that than I expected or feared. In a way, like maybe you, um, you know, one one imposes higher expectations, or or you know, like puts more pressure on oneself than other people will necessarily. Because I, you know, I certainly question myself about what I choose to write. and you know, I'm kind of I, you know, what I choose to spend my time on, um, because I. Um, I am, you know, I am interested in, in kind of diversity. I'm interested in, in, you know, boosting voices that have been traditionally marginalized and so on. And you, um, and it's, you know, the nature of any system that for it to work, to an extent, everyone is complicit. Um, so so I, I certainly sort of question myself about, you know, is this the right thing to be doing, to be spending all this time on, say, uh you know, this is kind a of fun Regency novel and uh, uh, the setting that was frankly funded by slavery and this, this kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, so I suppose I'm harsh enough on myself and like that, that it's kind of surprised me that actually not that many people have sort of come up to me and said, you know, why are you, why are you writing this? Why aren't you writing, I don't know, like a World War II epic set in, set in Singapore or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, Yeah, so there's not been that much of it. But, I mean, the book's not
0: out yet. Maybe it'll come. It just (laughs) seems to me that one of the the other sides of inclusion uh, is a a pressure to represent. You know, it might... Because I I could understand someone saying, well, yes, I am all these things, whatever that particular uh, set of demographics might be, but I'm actually an individual who wants to write and it happens to be that I want to do this. Do I have to do that as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: a similar example,
1: and we talked to uh, to Karen Lord on the podcast, is that you know being being from from Barbados and writing a first novel uh, based on West African folklore, uh, there was some expectation that people that she was going to you know write out of that culture, and she writes a, a kind of you know far flung Le Guin inspired uh, space opera which deals with that deals with. Issues of colonialism and then deals with yeah. issues of diaspora, yeah. but again, I, and I remember talking to Karen, and she was saying Nalo Hopkinson is expected to write about the Caribbean. Um yeah. there's a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit of bigotry behind that attitude. I think.
2: I think I think it is. You know, you know the, the, those pe- people with like so- like unmarked identities are allowed to write about anything they like. Um, exactly. You know, there's no expectation that you know you you just have to stick to the the concerns of, of that unmarked identity. And so everyone else is kind of seen as sp- speaking out this particular, you know, and, and not being able to write a universal story. Um, mm. You know, I don't, you know, either all the stories are universal. None of them are really. Um, is, is kind of my, my attitude. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's interesting with Karen um, because, you know, you, when, when you read her, you know, the best of all possible world, it could, it, it's it's a you know it's a book no one else could have written and hopefully say source right. of the crown is a book that no one else could have written so you do make it your own but people do you know like that there is this kind of expectation like Malaysians have this it's also like oh you have to write about Malaysians or you have to stop writing about non-Malaysians or you know that that kind of thing and it's um right. you you just can get caught in this this bind really that you're not allowed to you're not allowed to break free of that um that that um space I guess.
1: I wouldn't be surprised if people, if some reviews start mentioning uh, people like Ishiguro, uh, because I remember when uh, uh, the, oh, the, <laughs> the, the the oh you know the first novel the one the the remains of the day uh, yeah. even though he's a British he's, he's, you know he's a British writer but um, but people were saying isn't it amazing how well he's understood British culture and I thought he lives there what's the problem yeah. I mean he
2: he's I mean he's he grew up here and he? he sort of came here as a quite young people, yeah.
0: Do you find that colonialism is something that, from your reading and your own experience, fantasy and science fiction seems to be more interested in talking about these days?
2: Hmm. Um, Not really. (laughs) I
0: I ask that because I've seen stuff in the writings of Nalo Hopkinson, of Karen Lord, of Tobias Buckle. I see it in the writings of some of my fellow Australians. I see it. Here and there, it seems to come up more and more.
2: Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's kind of um, It's a question you can unpack: like, wh- wh- what is science fiction and fantasy? I guess. Um, I think. Um, I think. Well, but but you know, someone like Tobias Buckle, I mean, surely he was he was always quite interested in it. Um, mm. Is it is it something that he's more interested in now, or is it just that science fiction fantasy is, is starting to listen to the voices that have always been there? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess, you know, when I say science, fiction, fantasy in that way, who do I mean? Um, I'm just I'm just asking you a question. There's lots of questions of my own. <laughs> but I think I, what I would say is that, you know, I, I, I love the work of the people that you, you've mentioned. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, the, it's still like quite a small percentage of the overall field. Um, and I think um, I think I suppose the answer is kind of yes. If you think about it, like something like ancillary. Justice, um, and the, the sequels by Anne Leckie, you know, it's, it's all about mm-hmm. empire and, you know, the, the after effects of empire and trying to dismantle an empire. Spoiler! Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, it's, but I think colonialism is actually something that's quite difficult. It's quite difficult to, to talk about and is quite, and, and, you know, and most, um, I would say that most people who benefit from it, and I actually, I, I mean Americans and I mean, british people but i also mean uh privileged people from ex-colonies including myself um Mm. and it's very difficult to see uh to understand colonialism and to see the effects clearly i mean it was was, it's a big it was a big and it is a big system right Mm. um i I mean on that it's sort of off topic but um i've been reading the art of charlie chan hop chai which is a graphic novel by sunny liu just wow. published by epigram books in Singapore. And I think is coming to not, I think, um, in the U S at some point. Um, and it's really interesting. It's about, uh, a fictional, uh, comics artist in Singapore. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be a sort of, um, biography of his, of his life, but it's really about the construction of Singapore. And it's about Singaporean history. Um, and, um, which is, which is, uh, kind of intertwined with, with Malaysian history. Um, mm. and, um, there's a very interesting, he, he starts almost from the beginning talking about how this, a uh, Charlie Chan Hock who is the fictional, um, comics artist was educated in an English, uh, medium school. So one of the English medium schools founded by the British and how, um, as a result, he doesn't have as, you know, he doesn't have as nuanced an understanding of, um, actually what's going on with the British being in Singapore. Um, this is before independence. Um, and he he kind of learns it through, and you know he goes to this this protest, which is being done by the the Chinese medium school students, and the 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 Chinese medium school students have are, are much more radicalized. You know they they kind of see, for example, they're being required to join national service, and they see this as essentially being required to join an occupying army, which it kind of mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, an occupying foreign army. And um, I thought that was you know that's such an interesting nuanced point, and something like that. Um you know, something like that is is something that we're only just in a way, we're only really just beginning to explore a thing. And and when I say we, I mean people who, who are from the ex colonies and sort of thinking about this sort of thing. Um is is something we're only starting to explore in, in fiction and, and in art. Um uh, that's quite a sort of rambling answer i i guess yeah my point is that i guess science fiction fantasy is talking about it more, but it's it's that the 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 level of the discourse is so low i mean i'm not i'm not blaming people because mm. it's hard but um it it's almost like you know when 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 like a, i'm sure a good portion of science fiction fan, fandom <laughs> community won't even acknowledge that like that, you know they're like well actually imperialism was kind of a good thing because we gave you railways uh you know yeah. that kind of level of discourse <laughs> <So you laughs> use that as to, like you know, to something like, um, well, like the art of Charlie Chan Hok Chai, which is just, just not really science fiction fantasy, although it does have a robot in it. Um, <laughs> so maybe you can, you can count it as, as such. Um, where, where, you know, you're having these really quite, um, interesting conversations, which, uh, interesting discussion, which will probably be, like, be quite difficult to follow unless you understand the region, although it does have footnotes. So anyway, this is, this is really just me recommending this book to you. To get, get a hold. <laughs> I think
1: colonialism has always been a theme in science fiction and in and, and, and science fiction, especially and to some extent in fantasy, but a, a relatively invisible theme since it's written from the point of view, essentially, of, of, of Rome or London, of the uh, center of the empire. I mean, even Le Guin with her Hainish novels has a backstory of uh, superior civilization going around and um, and helping uplift other societies, although that became that was in the very early novels, by by the time she was writing. The Left Hand of Darkness and the Dispossessed, it became a much more complicated, sophisticated understanding of colonialism. But Asimov's Foundation Trilogy evades this, I mean, it's based on the Roman Empire completely, and sort of evades the conquest of other peoples by assuming that humans, in this this case, ordinary, you know, um, white, middle-class humans like Isaac Asimov, would occupy the entire galaxy without ever encountering an alien race and therefore the empire was built up from scratch and therefore you avoid the issue of um of having to oppress peoples in order to build your empire it's kind of a very clever move on his part i thought
0: Mm. yeah let me ask you a question sorcerer of the emperor empire is not the only book you have out this year though is it
2: uh, no, that's right, yeah.
0: Because you you've also found time in amongst you know, writing your first novel and everything else to edit Cyberpunk Malaysia. What yeah. can you tell us yeah. about that?
2: So Cyberpunk Malaysia is essentially what it says in the ten is an anthology of short stories, um, cyberpunk stories, written by Malaysian authors and set in Malaysia most yeah, exclusively. Um and it was published by Book of Fixie, who are the publisher who who put out source uh, spirits abroad. Um mm-hmm. and um yeah, edited um, basically what happened was last year Amir who runs Fixie um, said to me would you like to, I a cyberpunk anthology and my answer was really, you know I shouldn't really be taking this on but yes um, <laughs> and um, and so that's that's what we did and um, we got 100 submissions which is quite a lot for an English language Malaysian anthology <laughs> um, and, um, and then I you know obviously chose some stories and pulled it together it came out in June uh, this year um, and uh, yeah it's it's not that that's not it's not super available um, in paperback outside Malaysia, um, but it's um, it is available as an ebook on Google Play and, and Smashwords and all the usual other um, ebook retailers. And you can get the paperback on Amazon.com.
0: Why Cyberpunk? I mean, it wouldn't appear superficially to connect to your interests, even though I realize that that it re- reduces. You. Know your your scope of interest too much as as a shorthand, but it seems to be something completely distanced from what you what you do otherwise.
2: Well, practically speaking, it was, it was really just because I was asked, <laughs> and um, and the reason why I think Amir was interested was because actually he got uh, like an email from a fan. So Pixie's um, books are quite well known in Malaysia; they're they're on the bestseller lists um, invariably. Um, and um, Amir's really exploited this kind of like he's really cleverly exploited this kind of um, like the uh, urban Malaysia is very. Uh, uh, connected it's very like it's on social media we like we have loads of memes um it's on instagram so um uh, he sort of um exploited the like the the this kind of like desire in like the yeah like young urban leisure to take like um, attractive mm-hmm. instagram photos of books that are uh, you know fashion- sort of like trendily packaged <laughs> and then, and i think i think i think a lot of them do also read the books um <laughs> <laughs> Um, so um, Fixie's meant to kind of it's its premise that it publishes pulp fiction essentially and um, and I, I mean it's, it's quite a a, large, a wide uh, definition of pulp really because I, I don't think spiritual Brother is really pulp in any sense and I don't, I don't say this in a way to like run pulp down, so I'm not really sure this it but um, it's um, so 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 Fixie put out a series of anthologies called kale Noir which is like anthologies of short stories um, noir short story set in KL um, Kuala mm. Lumpur uh, and which is the capital city of Malaysia um, and yeah. um and so a fan wrote in saying you know what would be a n- natural kind of successor to this is cyberpunk because cyberpunk well I said this but Cyberpunk's basically like war with cyborgs um and um huh. and so Amir was like oh yeah, yeah actually you yeah. know um and, and I think his attitude was probably like sci-fi never sells well in Malaysia, but we might have, you know, we'll keep trying. And, um, <clears> and so, he, um, so he said, yeah, let's do a cyberpunk anthology. He got in touch with me. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, let's do it. Um, I think it's, you know, I I, I I have to admit, yeah, like cyberpunk is probably not my, like, favorite genre ever, if you're talking about, like, the subgenres and science fiction and uh-huh. fantasy. But, um, you know, what it is, it is a very urban It's actually quite a good vehicle for um, for talking about things that do interest me. And so the stories that ended up in Cyberpunk Malaysia are obviously stories that um, I find interesting, and and they are very they're very political. They're very um, they are very interested in kind of what's going on in urban Malaysia at the moment. Um, And um, and so I think that sort of worked. Well, I mean, you know,
1: it's kind of up to readers to decide. A, a lot of these are writers whose, uh, whose names I certainly didn't recognize, so some of them are, are, are more or less discoveries on your part. Some of them are, are fairly new writers, I gather.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think... Um I think, I mean, actually, I would have liked to have discovered more <laughs> new writers. I mean, people do, when, when it was, when the table contents was published, people were sort of saying, oh, it's completely like, um, like unpublished writers, whatever. That's not actually true. I mean, like, so, several of the writers in the anthology, um, have previously been published in other Fixie oh. anthologies or in other Malaysian, um, kind of venues. I guess, I think most of them haven't published um, in, uh, like, U.S., Mm -hmm. U.K. zines, and that's probably why the names are uh, less familiar to U.S., US, U.K. readers. Um, But, um, yeah, I didn't really make... I think you know there are a couple of like new writers but i don't i, I you know I, I can't take the credit for sort of discovering this trove of Malaysian writers that nobody's ever heard of
0: was there anything that surprised you or that you took away from reading a hundred odd contemporary science fiction stories written by by you know new or established Malaysian writers
2: Um, it's it's because it's early in years its sort of faded faded out i think um Nothing really uh, surprised me. I think things that were interesting were, uh, you know, there's, there's just, um, you, you you saw the same themes coming up again. I mean, there were, you know, as a whole, the, the, the stories were so political. Um, and I don't know if that's, um, you know, and, and, and political in a very direct way, responding very directly to things that are going on in Malaysian society and in Malaysian politics. And I want, you know, that, I don't think that's really, that really happens at the moment in um, US-UK science fiction, for example. Um, but at the same time, I think that's something that's obviously part of the tradition of science fiction. That is, it is, you know, very overt, overtly pol- political. Um, mm. And so what you find in, and, and you, what you find in the what I found in the, the submissions and also actually in the stories that ended up being in the anthology is that you, you had very direct critiques of, you know, the use of religion as a political tool. And you had uh, people thinking about um, it, talking about, you know, like the use the exploitation of migrant labor in Malaysia and uh, the treatment of migrant workers. And, uh, you know, you talking about um, things like, uh, well, you know, the, the division between rich and poor. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, that was actually, actually what I expected, but um, because in Malaysia, the arts and the kind of political scenes are, are they kind of directly overlap like people who are interested in, in the arts are often also you know kind mm. of interested in, in activism and that kind of thing um one thing that did surprise me was uh, uh and this is just like completely it's not off topic but yeah it wasn't characteristic was that the, there were people who sort of sent their stories in and they just did not have a clue. I mean, you know, some of them just weren't cyberpunk. I I, I had to, like a little I'd make notes and one of the notes I often made was like, is this cyberpunk? Mark. Is this uh-huh. science fiction? And, <laughs> <heart."> <laughs> um, and, and the one story that will last in my memory forever is somebody who sent in a fanfic story uh, uh, which was fanfic for Dota um, which, um, do you know Dota?
0: No.
1: No.
2: It's like um, it's, it's a computer game. It's it's a, it's like World of Warcraft. Okay, um, huh. it's, it's a multiplayer online thing. Uh, it stands for Defense of the Ancient. So so you know like like my friends when when they were teenagers used to get around their computers and like fight Orcs essentially, um, together. Um, so somebody sent in a Dota fan thing. But not only did they do that to like to my Cyberpunk anthology, not only did they do that, they they had the like the nerve or the complete cluelessness to send it in and it, right next to the titles like title story brackets, a Dota fanfic. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you give me a break, at least, at least delete the a Dota fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> it just it showed me the like, modicum of respect. Um, and I read the whole thing, by the way, just in case there was like some kind of lurking yeah. <laughs> you know, of, of amazing cyberpunk, like, maybe it's the wrong title. Um, no, it was a Dota fanfic.
1: And that was completely uh, completely unironic, I suppose. <laughs> I think it really was just, you know. Uh. Uh. Let's <laughs> well, say it, 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 It's interesting. There's a, I mean, fanfic is, it's self-labeled fanfic seems kind of odd, I suppose. Uh, but <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know how to deal with that. I mean, there's certainly a Regency romance fanfic. One of my favorite characters in in, in a novel that almost nobody reads anymore by Gore Vidal it was one of his strange novels called Duluth. He has a romance writer character in it. And this is back, the novel must have come out in the 70s. Um, a romance writer character who is so clueless. I mean, all she's read are other Regency romances and she, and she never realized during her entire career that she wasn't writing Hyatt Regency romances because she thought she was writing romances set in big hotels.
0: <laughs> oh no. hotels. Well, the Hyatt, Hyatt, Hyatt Hotels... Hotel-
2: Okay,
0: that's awful. It's, it's just a
1: absolute, yeah. But but that's that. That's, it seems to me fanfic has always been there, but but people usually don't subtitle it that or put a parent. <laughs> <laughs> parent yeah, usually they they, they they
0: usually try to follow file, file up the
2: serial numbers, at least you know kind of
0: change the name. Well, yeah, exactly. Oh, unless they're being ironic, I could see I could see Bruce Sterling uh, writing something with fanfic in the title quite easily. Frankly, Um right. <laughs> So, Sorcerer of the Crown is going out into the world, and I assume you must have been writing the sequel for the last year
2: yes, so i'm yeah, I'm working on it in the moment I've been working on it for a while yeah
0: and are are you well progressed or is is you know are we going to see it what in another year is that the plan
2: um well, I'm hoping not actually I'm hoping to to have like a year where um because Oh, Sorcerer sold in late 2014 and it's coming out this year and that's quite fast I think I think the other um um the you know I, I don't really know but but like you know like Ace I think wanted to, to like get it out fairly quickly um for whatever reason. Um, it, it, it actually, the, the book was actually, you know, it went to auction when we went in submission to publishers. And the other publishers were actually thinking of when you sort of, they sent through their marketing plans, whatever, they, they were thinking of bringing it out in sort of early 2016, which I think is probably a more normal um, period. Um, and that would have given me more time um, because essentially what the, the schedule meant was that I was doing edits in you know still doing it working on edits to book one as of january this year and then i was kind of dealing with the proofs and the copy edits as well as editing yeah, <laughs> in the first sort of three four months of the year um and it, and what that has meant is that i haven't had really much time to work in the book until sort of um you know a bit the, uh, on book two until a bit later and so um i um i don't know for sure but i'm i'm hoping that it, um i'm gonna have like a year where uh, you know, I'll I'll have time to just focus on book three actually next year and uh-huh. um and not be distracted by promo. Um and that maybe I think ideally for me the book two would come out maybe early twenty seventeen. But I, I have no power over that. Um and I don't really know what's going to happen. Um so what I'm doing right now is just working on um on book two. Um it's reasonably I mean, I kind of know what it's going to I know what it's about. Um I have I've actually got a first draft, but my first drafts are pretty um, hmm. they're not really like books in any way, oh, <laughs> any, any. so um, I've turned it into something that's a bit more like a book before I can send it to my editor. Um, so that's what's happening at the moment.
0: Excellent. And will you also be putting out new short stories? When I, mean, I saw you had one out uh, earlier this year, Monkey King, Fairy Queen. Are we going to see more short stories along the way, or are they all on hold while you finish up the they're, novels? Yeah,
2: they're they're on hold. I mean, it's it's... Um, I think one thing that's really surprised me about this process is just how much, um, like, how much promo stuff there has been to do on Sorcerer to the Crown*, and and how much time that takes up. And um, you know, I think this, this, yeah, I don't know if it's standard for, you know, standard for novelists like it, it's just something that you do. But like, certainly, it wasn't something I was prepared for. So I think like. It's, I'm just barely able to juggle that and my day job, which I still have, and hmm. um, and uh, and too. So it's um, yeah, no no short stories for the for the uh, fund.
0: And and is it your goal to become become a full time writer, or are you, you content balancing a, a a day job with it?
2: Um, it kind of depends. I mean, I think just in terms of how much time you have, I imagine like you know it would be nice to have. Days off. <laughs> you know, I remember. I remember those days and you know, like uh, having having time off, and that that sounds quite attractive. And I, I think I imagine that if I if I was full time writing, I would actually have be able to say it's a weekend, I'm not going to do any work. Um, but equally, you know, like I've I've seen the publishing industry isn't always the most comfortable in- industry to be in, and I've seen it. I've seen the kind of vagaries of it really affect. Fellow writers, and you know, it's not uh-huh. good for your writing. And I think just having the stability, the interest of a day job, and being able to kind of go to work and know people and and be good at stuff that's just completely separate from the writing is um, is something I quite enjoy. Which I think is, and I think is ultimately beneficial for not only me as a person, but for for my writing. So, yeah, I don't know.
1: Excellent. Well, I think you'd certainly have the, the 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 makings of a popular series here. The the one thing that seems to me, it seems to me there are two ways that people read trilogies. One is that you have a narrative arc that just doesn't finish. Uh, the one I like, the, 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 the kind I like is, is the kind that has really engaging characters in it. And I must say Prunella is a wonderful character. She's colorful and, 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 and she's sort of um, the kind of person you want to read more about. Zacharias is as well, and of course, Mac Gengang is a sort of character who I assume will show up because that's the wild card. that That's the character who, in this novel, tells me that I have no idea what's going to happen in the next novel, which is always a good feeling. <laughs>
2: yeah, we'll see. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, we've just about reached, in fact, we have reached the, the end of our hour. I'd like to thank you very, very much for making the time to join us on the Cooge Street Podcast. We really appreciate it, Zen.
2: No, thank you very much. I really
0: enjoyed it. And good luck with Sorcerer to the Crown. It seems to be uh, you know, one of those books that everyone's talking about, so I hope it's a, an enormous success. It should be in shops any day now, if not already in stores everywhere. Yeah. So uh, if you're listening, I've certainly read most of it, and I'm, I will be going to finish it after I finish recording the podcast, and I, I, I would strongly recommend it to you. I think we'll be talking about it through, you know, through the, you know, into the new year as we hit next year's awards season. And Gary, you and and I, no doubt, will record another one of these podcasts in a week or so. Very soon, though. I think it'll be 250. (laughs) Wow. Because this is 249. So, until such times, thank you again. And we remain, now as always, the Coot Street Podcast.